Yeah, KFC is going to have the Impossible Vegan Chicken. Is that what it is? Like the Has anybody tried the Impossible Burger that you buy from the store and cook? No. I haven't either. The veggie burger? The ve- it's like a veggie burger, yeah, yeah. Like Soy-based. Yeah. I, so, two years ago now, the, I had a doctor who was a surgeon... And super nice guy, and he he turned me on to this thing called whole whole food plant based. Has anybody ever heard of this yeah. whole food plant based diet? It's where you try to avoid processed foods, like and pretty much eighty percent of the grocery store is processed. Anything between produce and dairy and the meat department, the the box in the center of the grocery store, most of that food is processed. And the reason why it's processed is because it's got shelf life. You know, they put you know preservatives and things in that. Well, if you just hang out in basically produce and if you want to eat meats and dairy you know that area you know there's there's mixed uh, emotions on you know meat you know uh i know meats are not good for you to eat in large chunks but i mean I, i'm a meat lover i like meat but uh if you subscribe to the whole food plant-based uh lifestyle or ideology it's basically if you avoid meat and eat mostly whole food plant ba- whole plant-based foods you're going to reduce your risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and uh, you're just you know increasing your likelihood of health. And so it's all there's so much randomness in the human physiology. I mean, you could do everything right and still end up with one of these terrible diseases. But um, whole food, plant based, there is something to that. I did a lot of research into it when I got into it. There's a great documentary on Netflix called Forks Over Knives. Has anybody seen this? Yeah, it's really good and. The evidence is very compelling, and it's not some documentaries you watch, and the people presenting it are not experts. They're just documentary filmmakers that have a topic they're interested in, and they research it and they go present it. That doesn't mean that it's not true, it's just that they're not experts in the field, uh, academics. The people that present evidence in this documentary are academics, uh, PhDs, medical doctors, and They've studied it for decades, and uh, Colin Campbell wrote a book called, well, he's wrote several, but one of them's the China study. He did the largest study on human nutrition in the history of the world where he went to China, and they wanted to uh, you know, assess what the impact of meat and animal-based products were on health. And they, they, the basic takeaway was that if you lived in poor counties in China, you didn't eat a lot of meat and animal products because you couldn't afford to, but you could eat a lot of plant-based products. And so they observed, like, <laughs> it was very much uh, obvious in the, in the statistics, and it was obvious in the uh, significance that counties that were richer, that had more access to meat and animal-based products, they had higher rates of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, whereas the poorer counties did not. And so... You know, correlation does not necessarily mean causation, just to keep that. Correlation means a relationship. So, you know, this and that go together, but doesn't necessarily mean the cause, but the in science, there's a significant enough uh, data to, to indicate there is some relationship between meat and health. But, uh, you know, we'll talk about stuff in this class about different industries and stakeholders. Um, it's in the interest of big agriculture 
to you know keep people eating meat and dairy you know milk right uh, does a body good that has kind of been ingrained in our uh, sociology as a society you know and my pork the other white meat right we know these taglines at least I do you know you know these taglines don't you I mean yeah what's that keto yeah keto it makes you I mean I'm not knocking keto my dad's a keto advocate um, but you know you know eating a ton of bacon is not good for you you know it just it just can't be you know so it, it is good yeah but if you're eating a bacon and cheese sandwich that doesn't feel right, you know what I mean? So I just, I don't know. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but uh, all these topics we talk about in the opening banter do tie back to management and decision-making because the decisions that's made in industry or the decisions we make in society feed into industry and industry gives it back to us, you know? So as a society, uh, if we say that, how many, let me ask you guys a question. How many times a week do you guys eat out? At least once? Right? <laughs> so, no, I mean, no, it's no judgment because I eat out quite a bit myself. And then reason being, uh, convenience, right? I mean, convenience, yeah. And so if I've got to go to the store and buy everything it takes to make a supper that's going to cost between 10 and $20, you know, for a family of five, I could go to, you know, McDonald's or Burger King or somewhere else, Wendy's, uh, or a sit-down restaurant and have a better meal, maybe a little bit more of a premium, but or for some in some cases the exact cost. And so, society, I believe now is eating out more than they used to. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because it used to be that, and this is not any kind of judgment or this is just an observation. It used to be that there was a kind of a nuclear family, so to speak, where uh, you had a stay-at-home parent. You had a parent that worked, and you had a stay-at-home parent that did, you know, household chores and, and clean, cleaning and cooking and things like that. This is, a, you know, kind of a prototypical thing. Not necessarily the case in all in all cases, of course. But as our society has evolved, now it takes uh, both parents, if you have a two-parent family, uh, doing more than one job to make ends meet. And if you're working one or more job and you've got a family and you're trying to also cook and grocery shop and all that stuff, it's a lot. And so we as a society have changed and, in, and so to that change, industry has changed because of that. And they, I mean, you better believe that, has anybody ever done a survey on the back of a receipt for a free sandwich? Has anybody ever done this? No? You've done this? No? Okay. Well, yeah, if you get a sandwich at some of these places, they give you a receipt and on the back it says, you know, take our five minute survey, we'll give you a free sandwich next time and I've done this a couple times you know why not free sandwich but when I'm reading and part of it is a interest in what they're trying to gather the data they're collecting on us is extremely valuable it's worth that sandwich it's worth more than the sandwich and the reason why they're gathering it is so they know how often you visit why do you visit you know what's some demographic information about you that you can provide to give insights as to their product and service um, how many of you still use Facebook one Two, three, four. Yeah, that's awesome. And how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 18. 18. Never plan to have a Facebook, probably, do you? Yeah. So what do you use instead of Facebook? Instagram and Snapchat. Instagram and Snapchat. Okay. So do a lot of you, the, the non-Facebook users feel the same way? Just no interest, don't care? Yes. Don't care? I just don't no? Do you use social media at all? No? Awesome. So social media... <laughs> Don't, hey, let me tell you, I mean, like, 
I have changed my whole social media way. I mean, I, I used to be more heavily involved in social. Like now, I'm more of a uh, just post pictures of my kids on Facebook for my family and friends. That's pretty much what I do. Uh, you know, every once in a while I post an article, but I realize that nobody cares about articles on Facebook. Like you could post an interesting article about something that I think is interesting. Nobody cares. They just want to see pictures of dogs and puppies and kids, you know. So, yeah, that's all. And, uh, you know, on Twitter, you know, you could go get news, but there's just a lot of insane people on Twitter, you know. And so, yeah, you're dealing with just a ton of trolls. So, And there's a lot of fake accounts on Twitter, too, that are trying to, like, bait you into giving them money, that kind of, you know, trap that fuck people. Yeah. Every year, they'll, like, send out a message and it'll be like, well, Instagram is disabling um, accounts and all that other stuff. And people with accounts will get disabled, so then they have to make up a whole new account. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, social media is designed for the user to be the product. They sell your data. And this is a big deal. People don't think about the, the information they provide and how that data is manipulated. You've probably seen where you've gone to like Amazon and looked at an item, then gone to a social media and that item be there on that social media platform. And you're thinking, man, that's pretty spooky, right? And uh, that's the, because of these tracking cookies and it's all over the place. And so uh, just be, be mindful of that. And the decisions we make as individuals really do affect our societal level decisions. So we started out on Tuesday talking about managerial decision making and several characteristics. I'm not going to go through these right now. We're going to kind of recap a little bit to get to where we were and dive a little bit deeper. And so we talked about decision making, the action or process of thinking through possible um, options and selecting ones. We talked about uh, stakeholders and shareholders. So stakeholders are anybody connected to an organization by any means. If you if you have zero connection to an organization but you live close to them, you're a stakeholder because traffic patterns affects you know where you live. I mean, so if they've got uh, commerce coming around there, you're a stakeholder. You know, or uh, yeah, if you have ownership in the company, any type of ownership, you're a shareholder at that point. Stakeholders include things like employees, customers, uh, shareholders, anybody connected to the company. Talked about how. The stakeholders of places like Walmart are huge. You've got all types of products and services that come into that. And if um, if Walmart went out of business today, think about how many millions and millions and millions of people would be affected. There's two million plus Walmart employees. All of them will be out of a job. And then there's probably another 10 to 20 million that are uh, directly, con- directly, ind- directly connected to the commerce of Walmart through... Uh, companies that provide services, think about Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Frito-Lay, right? That's just three. Keep going. And so all those companies would be severely impacted. And then you've got um, all the other stakeholders that are the customer base. They say they have 100 million people go through these stores in a week. So all of them got to find somewhere else to go uh, put their dollars. So we talked about what is correct versus what is what is ethical as a manager. This is a tough um this is a tough thing, especially if you're a very ethical person, which I encourage you to be. Um, I worked in the car business at one point. Nothing wrong with working in the car business. I can see me working in the car business again as like uh, an owner at some point because my dad owned a car dealership, and it's a very profitable endeavor. But um, you, there are some ethical dilemmas that pop up, and I would hope that I would side on the side of ethics. You know, 
uh, because, let me give you an example. Um, as a car salesperson, your job is to not be on the side of the customer, to, to be an advocate for them. You're actually an advocate for the dealer. And I had to really shift that paradigm. I had to have that explained to me when I was a salesperson. It's like, really? You know, I'm not here to help the customer buy a car. I'm here to help the dealer make the most money possible. And so to me, that was a constant ethical battle, you know. Uh, and so suffice it to say, I didn't last long at Toyota. But when my dad opened up a place, we had a lot more leeway as to how we did things. And we were a lot more flexible in our, in our terms and things like that and our prices. And so managers are faced with ethical dilemmas all the time. And it's tough because just like with children, if you have to make a, you know, you don't want to make it, do one thing for one person or one child, and then they turn around and make the other child feel disenfranchised or like, you know, why didn't I get this? Or why didn't I get this benefit? Or why didn't you do this for me? You know, and so it's really a tough, tight rope to walk because it's really something that, manifest even if you try to do everything right people are going to still perceive things as being as them being wrong in some way even if you've done everything to please uh, somebody uh, let me tell you this as a management tip you can't please everybody you just can't do it i wrote something on social media recently uh, just as a joke but, but a lot of truth in it said i've learned as a father of three that you can please two children but you can't please three you can please two of them yeah where do you want to go eat let's go to chick-fil-a child one yes child two yes child three no don't like it. Don't want to go. It's Chick-fil-A. What is wrong with you? You know what I mean? You know? But so with management, if you've got 20 employees, no, you're just not going to please them all. And so you're going to learn very quickly who your people are that are very easy to work with and some that are more difficult or more abrasive. And you're going to have to spend some time with the more abrasive people probably because they're going to get in your face and explain why what you're doing is unfair. But at the end of the day, you have different management styles that you'll deploy based on the personality and the person you're dealing with. So people that are very uh, easy to get along with, the, you know, you can be very hands-off with those people. The people that are difficult, you have to micromanage a little bit more, and you almost have to, you have to tell them how it is versus how asking them to help. And so that's just what it is. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. They can go work somewhere else. This is, these are difficult things that you're faced with in management. Having to fire people, not a fun thing. But if you're going into management, you need to know that's part of the part of the deal. Um, we also talked about reflective and reactive systems. Reflective, remember that this this is where we have more time to think, reflect. It's a logical, analytical, deliberate, and um, methodical approach. With reactive, you're having this quick impulse, you know. And so, keeping with the car uh, like example, has anybody bought a car in the past year? You bought a car. What kind of car did you get? A Lexus. A Lexus. What color is it? It's like a plum burgundy. A plum burgundy? Okay. You, is it a was it a GS or LS or LX LS or LS three fifty? Beautiful car. Uh, my dad had a Lexus LS four four hundred. Lexus is beautiful. What what your model is it? God, man, you are like balling, man. That's awesome. Beautiful car, man. Beautiful car. So let me ask you this. When you saw that car at the dealership, what was your first reaction? Uh, I, was, I didn't want it, really. Are you serious? I mean, I like driving this. Yeah, right. So this was automatic? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 
So you didn't have a reaction like, oh my God, I love this car? No. No? I was getting rid of something I really, like, really loved. This guy, you're a conundrum, Kevin, because if I saw a Lexus and I had an opportunity to get it, I'd be like, yeah, I'm in love. So, all right, you're a bad example. I'm going to move on. <laughs> Bilma, what's up? What did you get? Dodge Dart. Yeah, it has a pink rim. Okay, when you saw it, did you have an emotional reaction to it? Like, I love it. Yeah. Gotta have it, it. right? Mm -hmm. And so, did you have a moment? Did you buy it same day? So you had a few days to really. Did you after you got over your emotional reaction that you had? Did you go to a reflective mode? We thought about it and thought it through. Can I afford this? Is this a good move? Right. And so. Usually that's how it is. Like I'm very reflective. Um, if I see something I want, I usually drag my feet in getting it. Like it takes me. I'm usually what's called a laggard as far as a consumer. Uh, I usually get things either after they've been well established or kind of on the downtrend. Everybody's had it for a while. You know, like if a new gaming system comes out, you know, I'll wait. Like I never bought an Xbox One, for example. I had a PS4, but I waited a year to get it, but I sold it. Uh, once the Switch came out, because I love Nintendo, so. All right, what's that? Switch is awesome. Switch is awesome, yeah. It's getting even better, I think. Um, so we also talked about emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is the ability to understand how you feel about things and to be able to kind of regulate that. There's these different aspects of emotional intelligence we mentioned. Self-awareness, self-regulation, social skills, and empathy. Um, and if you lack in any one of these areas, it can really hurt your ability to be a good manager. Um, Self-awareness, some people speak and they don't realize just how awkward they are sometimes or how they rub people the wrong way sometimes. They could be totally benign and good people, uh, but just the way they speak, they don't have any self-awareness about some things they say. Yes, ma'am. There you go, Michael Scott is a perfect oh. example. I mean, like, of this, of this whole spectrum here. Um, Michael like exhibits all of this, you know, when, as you know, everybody seen the office, everybody can get the example. So Michael Scott, he's very, very not self-aware and he's very egocentric. And so he also is not very good at self-regulating. If you, if Michael wants to cry, he's going to cry. Right. Or if he wants to scream and shout and cheer or whatever. So he has, he doesn't have a, a switch that can regulate very well. Um, he tries to have empathy you know, he tries to, but sometimes it comes off as disingenuous because he's not self-aware. And he tries to also uh, sometimes have genuine empathy, but it just, because he doesn't have good social skills, you know, he pretends to have good social skills, but he really doesn't because he makes a lot of awkward comments and inappropriate comments. And so even, um, what's that, Toby? Yeah, just, you know. So uh, the guy, what's his name? Uh, Steve Carell. He was interviewed within the past year, and he said that he didn't think they could make the office show today because of all the controversial and inappropriate things that they say. You know, and I watch it, and it's kind of benign to me. You know, I grew up watching Seinfeld, and the office is just, you know, kind of a, a like an evolution of that. And so there was a lot of hot-button topics in Seinfeld. Seinfeld was a controversial show when it came out. Uh, but now, you know, people are kind of... Uh, there's, there's, a big, there's a blended uh, mentality we have in our society. Some people are not offended by anything, and some people are very offended by everything, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? This, this idea of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Triggers? You've heard this expression? 
you get triggered on something and it could be a number of things so I, even I me and I've tried to be very uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, what's that courteous. courteous is a good word but I'm just thinking very uh, polite I guess or the way uh, you know I try not to offend anybody I try to be you know very respectful of everybody's space and thoughts uh, and so but even I have said things in class that rub people the wrong way and you know, sometimes it was their own mental health that was not in check. But uh, you know, I try to be very respectful of people's thoughts and and not say anything to offend anybody. So, um, but yeah, that's part of self awareness. That's part of emotional intelligence. And I like to think that I do have empathy. So, but I realize now I'm talking about myself, and that's something Michael Scott would do. So, anyway, so we'll move on to talking about uh, this is where I left off: programmed and non-programmed decisions. And so with program decisions, these are things that we do over and over again that seem very uh, robotic almost. I bet like sometimes I'll get in the car and, and arrive at work and it's almost like I don't even remember getting there. I actually, there's a impasse, uh, they've, they've, they're working on 117 or 403, uh, the way I come to work, and they've got traffic d diverted to the off-ramp. So you have to get on the off-ramp and then get off and it's always a process to do that. But some mornings I'll be on the way to work and think, have I already gone through the on-ramp? You know? Because if you do it five days a week over and over again, it becomes very you know, non-programmed. -program and so they've, they've programmed into me to do this off-ramp. And I'll bet you there'll be certain individuals, and I may be one of them, that once they open up the four lane, there'll be people that still take the off-ramp. And they'll be like, what have I done? What's that? Yeah, they're working on an expansion. So they're expanding 795, and so that's what they're, they're working on. And so non-program decisions are novel, unstructured decisions that are generally based on, a, on criteria that are not well-defined. So you don't really know all the pieces of the puzzle. You don't know how everything's going to come together. You don't know all the unintended consequences of a decision. And let me stress that to you. Anybody play chess? You do play chess? Got a couple chess players? Even if you don't play chess, you'll get the example. When you make a first, I, I read it, and I'm going to butcher the statistics, but after the first five or six moves on a chess board back and forth, there are literally trillions with a T of combinations that you can make on a chess board of how that game can resolve. Trillions of combinations. That's why chess is such a mind-boggling game, and you can play it for a lifetime and still not be a master, or you can be a master and still have a lot to learn. That being said, uh, there's this idea of unintended consequences. On the chessboard, you can make a certain move. If I move here, this is my best move I can make and then get captured, right? Same thing can happen in life. I've thought about something. I've spent time, you know, I've got over my reactive stage where I had an emotional, you know, outburst. I'm into my reflective mode now, thinking about what I should do. Spent the time, invested the time, I thought about it. I make a decision, I make a move, and then it blows up in my face, okay? That's because we don't know all the unintended consequences of our decisions. That being said, you should be mindful. There's this X factor in management. If I do this, what other things could happen that I don't, I'm not thinking about right now? Ask that question to yourself. And Nothing may happen at all. There may not be unintended consequences, but sometimes there are. These, this happens to me as a parent. You know, I do something with one kid, there's an unintended consequence with another kid, and now I anticipate some of these. If I take out my oldest kid to breakfast while my middle kid is sleeping, 
oh man, there's some unattended, there's some, there's some consequences to that. And so now I have to figure out how to make it right. And so in management, these types of things happen. There's trade-offs. There's opportunity calls to decisions we make. And so we get to, this is new material, the decision-making process. And with the decision-making process, it's a lot like the scientific method. Anybody remember the scientific method, seventh grade, somewhere in that neighborhood? Anybody do a science project in seventh grade or sixth grade? What did you do? Uh-huh. Anybody remember? Oh, so listening to different types of music rhythms affected. So you can listen to like techno and it gets you your heart going. Or if you listen to classical, it, it kind of you know, gets you more yeah, baseline. Like a lot of, like a theory kind of that your heart also followed the rhythm of the music. Wow. It's pretty cool. There's probably some truth to that theory. I mean, um, I can see how listening to upbeat music would create a stimulus that had a physiological response. So it's a good theory. I like it. Um, for me, I did a test on different light spectrums. I had a box with three onion petals, and I had different color light coming into each one of the boxes and to see which one responded. And I had a white light or clear light. I had a blue light, and I had a red light. And the red light onion grew the fastest, but as a kid, I got to see kind of how scientific method works. But as an adult, I realized that that test has a lot of flaws to it. This onion just could have been you know, a better grower. You have to test it multiple times in different settings. And, uh, but in any case, so the decision-making process for management, recognize that a decision needs to be made, right? So when the scientific method, the first is identify the problem. So what are we trying to, you know, that's trying to figure out. Generate multiple alternatives is step number two. So you, for me, having a piece of paper and writing out one, two, three, four, five, maybe, what things you could do. Analyze the alternatives. Which one do you think is the best right of the gates? And then evaluate the other ones and try to give them a fair shake as to should I do this? Select an alternative. This is the path I want to go down. Implement the selected alternative and then evaluate its effectiveness. And so as a manager, you're going to have various different types of, I guess, weight assigned to some of your decisions. You know, some decisions you make are very minor. They don't really have a huge impact. Others could have a tremendous impact. Like if you've got an incredibly good worker, somebody that is an all-star, but they have discipline problems or they have attendance problems, and you've got to make a management decision. If I cut this person loose, it's going to hurt my productivity because they're very productive when they're here and they're being because they're not giving me problems. But if I don't cut them loose, I'm going to continue to have discipline problems, and I may have even more because they realize that they can take advantage of me. And not only that, it might hurt morale of my other employees that are seeing this person get away with all kinds of things. I know, Scott, on the construction site, you probably have had this exact example, right? You've had somebody that does good when they're there, but getting them there is part of the problem, and then when they're there, they do cut up some, but they can get work done and it's hard to find good workers so you juggle with what do I do right yeah, he would do the work of three of my other employees right I need him really got to have him but I can't afford to let him sit there and do that right well it, I've not seen anything happen or consequences that they, they can do it too right I have this exact example plan at another company I'm familiar with 
So the company doesn't have a lot of employees, but uh, there's one employee that's very knowledgeable, very good, and this person has an absenteeism problem. I mean, they're absent pretty regularly, and but when they're there, very productive, you know. And so it's such a tough thing, and not only is it tough from uh, that standpoint, but then you bring into the play that owners and managers have to make, have these hard conversations with people. Like, imagine just sitting, having to sit down with somebody and say, your absenteeism is a problem or you not being here is a problem. That's a hard conversation to have. It really is. It's, it's, not, it's almost like a punishment for the manager to have to do that. But as you grow in your management skills, you've got to be able to have those conversations. And just, the, I use the ripping the band off analogy. When you have to have a tough conversation with somebody, um, you, can, you can start, you can preface it with something positive, but then just rip the Band-Aid off with the negative comment or the constructive comment, and then try to end on a positive note. Uh, example, if I was talking to Jonathan, say, you know, I appreciate all the hard work you're doing. You know, you do a great, you know, you make uh, tortillas, right? Or what do you make at, at, at your restaurants? We use tortillas. Use tortillas, but what, do you, what else do you make? Uh, burritos, okay. You make a mean burrito, but you're absent a lot, and that's creating uh, not only a productivity issue, but it's also causing your colleagues or coworkers to feel disenfranchised a little bit and it creates a problem. So if you can work on that, that would be tremendous and I appreciate you. Um, just wanted to have that chat and then leave it, try to leave it on high note. So just, I appreciate you and appreciate what you do. That's it, 60 seconds, it's over. Um, you know, managers don't like to have those conversations. I didn't like to have those conversations. And evaluate this effectiveness, if you have to have uh, a hard decision, you want to monitor it and make sure that you made the right decision and try to leave yourself an out. If this decision is not going to work, what else can you change to that might be a better alternative? So, all right. So let's talk about barriers to effective decision making. A couple things that come up that can cause some problems with decision making. There's one called bounded rationality. It's complex issues cannot be completely rational because we cannot fully grasp all the possible alternatives, nor the unintended consequences of every alternative. And I have this example, nuking hurricanes. And the reason I mention this, not because the president mentioned it, it's just it came up in the news recently. Has anybody heard about this? Nuking hurricanes, dropping a nuclear bomb on a hurricane? Yeah. Well, so this is not a new idea. Other people in the past have thought of it and mentioned it. It just so happens that it came up in the news recently. And um, I mentioned this example as bounded rationality because we don't know all the unintended consequences of dropping a nuclear bomb on a hurricane. So scientists say it probably won't work and it probably won't work. But I could see what could happen is that you could disturb the center of the mass of the storm but the outer bands probably continue to swirl around and they're just collecting all that ambient radiation and nuclear material and then dropping it all over land masses as it continues forward. So then you get irradiated people, buildings, bad things happen, you know. And so dropping a nuclear bomb, I don't know if anybody watched Chernobyl over, uh, the, over the summer, it was on HBO, I got to check it out. It was such a horrible event and uh, the, the show really brought to life just exactly what happened. But you know, when you're dealing with nuclear material like this, I mean, it is extremely volatile and extremely harmful to uh, biology, you know, humans, animals alike, and the, the ecosystem. 
And so this idea of bounded rationality, you know, you may think for a second it might be a good idea, but it's probably, there's so many unintended consequences that could come from that. Uh, and so, you know, anytime you deal with an with a idea that could lead to potentially really bad outcomes, you probably want to put that on the back burner and not, not touch that. So escalation of commitment, once we make a bad choice, we stick with it because it's difficult to change and reevaluate the change. And then also, we have to admit that we were wrong. If we make a, cho- uh, make a choice, make a decision, we go down a path, uh, we've, we've kind of locked ourselves into this decision. And then if we, if we end up saying we need to change, number one, it's costly to change. We've already invested into this particular path. But number two, it bruises our ego to say we were wrong. That's, that's, not, that's not a good thing. And so uh, this is a reason why it could be a barrier to decision-making. You know? People need to get over themselves. You know? And that's one of the reasons why you, know, you see a lot of turmoil in politics is that you have leaders that don't want to admit that they were wrong. And it's, it's both sides of the both, all political players. In the, every level of government, you know, if you have a mayor of a town and they make a decision that blew up in their face, they don't want to admit they were wrong because it hurts them politically. It hurts their chances of getting reelected. And so we make a commitment. We stick to it. We don't want to admit to be, that they were wrong. We try to uh, – there's this thing called confirmation bias, uh, well, selective bias, where we try to attribute uh, all the things that go right to us, the decisions we make, but all the things that go wrong, we blame on somebody else. That's because of some external force. Couldn't be me that made this happen. And so another reason, another barrier for effective decision-making is time constraints. Time pressure uh, that makes a decision uh, difficult. or So time decision to make a decision, I'm sorry, time pressure. So an example of time constraints are things like the chess clock or the NFL clock. When somebody calls a time, time out in the NFL, they only get a certain amount of time to decide or regroup how we're going to proceed. They know what the stakes are. They know what the, the game clock says. They know how many downs they've got left. They know what the defense looks like. They know what the, the key players on the defense are or who they are. And so they have this limited time to call a play, to make that play happen in order to respond to the conditions that are on the field at that time. And so time constraints really do put a lot of pressure on, in this example, NFL players. But there's other things in life that come up too that are time constraints. Uh, when you buy a house, you may have to have all the closing done within 45, 60, or 90 days, something like that. Um, you know, I was in a doctoral program. I had seven years to complete it. That's a time constraint. Seven years sounds like a long time until you're at year six. And then it's like, what happened? You know, like, i got to get this thing done. So uncertainty, that's another big uh, issue when it comes to decision-making. You have this crisis of confidence that occurs. You realize, oh, my gosh, I don't know everything. And people are depending on me to make a decision, and I'm not certain how it could get, you know, my decision-making ability, uh, how it is and how this decision outcome will be. So that uncertainty creates this crisis of confidence. Personal bias. We can't see the truth of a good decision because of our experiences, training, worldviews, or these biases. We seek out information that reinforces our own beliefs instead of truth, which is confirmation bias. So we, we seek out information that confirms the way we, we view the world. If I believe the, world, the earth is flat, I'm going to go to websites that says, hey, guess what? The earth is flat. And I'm going to ignore all the science that says, hey, we have a round globe earth. And that's because I've already sh- shaped my opinion. If I have you know, any other beliefs, 
I go to places that reinforce those beliefs. Um, I like, as an academic, somebody that's a teacher, likes to go and seek out things that challenge my beliefs, not, not in any particular uh, discipline, but it, you grow because of that. And sometimes you go somewhere that challenges you. Like if I went to a flat earth website, it would probably strengthen my conviction in the fact we have a round earth, you know. So there's people that don't believe we went to the moon. I mean, there's, you know, conspiracy theories there. So, And anybody believe in Area 51? There's aliens. I don't know. I mean, oh, since I asked, uh, before we get to our last point, do we believe in the existence of extraterrestrials? Do we believe that aliens exist? Yeah, you, what do you think, Lewis? I don't think we're the only species in the world. I, I don't believe. I, okay. I think that's the best way I believe too. I don't believe we're the only biological species in the universe on this planet alone. You know, intelligent. intelligent. That's tough. Who knows? But the universe is so much bigger than we can give it. I mean, we could even imagine. I mean, you can imagine how big it is if you study it. You know how big it is, but it's bigger than you can study or know. It's just so vast, and. If they're just a few light years away, I mean, a few light years is nothing in the in the the galaxy or the universe uh, span. Yeah, if they're just a few light years away, it would take, uh, I mean, forever to be able to reach them. So, um, and then we get to conflicts. Conflict. Remember, people are mostly binary. They seek pleasure and they seek to avoid pain. Hey, I want to do something that's fun, or I want to do something that doesn't cause me pain. So I'd rather go to the carnival than go to the gym, you know, unless you're Kevin. Kevin likes to go to the gym. Uh, conflict is painful, and people avoid it when possible, even if a better decision means conflict. You know, I know the right thing to do might be to fire two or three people that are troublemakers, but that would create a conflict. That would create drama, and I don't like drama, so I avoid firing these people, even though that's probably the best decision for my company, even though it's probably the best decision for my other workers that are here that see this conflict and drama. And so people avoid conflict. Sometimes you have to step in and, and instigate a conflict uh, in order, well, not necessarily a conflict, but instigate something that you think may lead to a conflict. Uh, but one of the other hats that we wear as managers is conflict resolution person. You have to be able to come in and, and bring people together to solve conflict. So this is uh, almost to the end of chapter two. When we come in Friday, we'll actually uh, cap off chapter two and we'll have another conversation about money. I know I mentioned this last week. You guys like that discussion? Was that good? I think there's some good value there for you guys as both managers, students, and as uh, individuals in our economy. So, all right, guys, I appreciate your time, and I will see you on Friday, okay? If you need me in the meantime, drop me an email. Also, don't forget about homework. Chapter 2, homework is due this Friday.